Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org slash donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been brought to you by our friends at Sanmar. Sanmar believes in the power of promotional products. Since 1971, this family-owned apparel supplier has been dedicated to passionately serving customers through trusted brands like Port Authority, Port & Company, Nike Golf, OGO, District, and Sport Tech. You can check them out online at sanmar.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are looking to shake up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm delighted to welcome Andy Thorne from Outstanding Branding to the podcast today. For the uninitiated, Andy is one of the industry's most outrageously lovable characters. He's not afraid to speak his mind, he makes friends easily, and in his words, he's pretty good at getting people to say yes to him. Andy, along with his business partner Sarah Penn, launched Outstanding Branding eight years ago in their native London, England. Since then, they have grown into a multi-million dollar distributorship by focusing on design, building a quirky company culture, and obsessively caring for their global clientele. In our episode today, we talk about how the UK promotional products market compares to that of the North American market, why Andy is not scared of Amazon, how to build a global distributor office, and why the future of our industry rests in selling creative marketing solutions versus logoed tchotchkes. Andy, it's a pleasure to have you on the episode. Welcome, sir. Uh, Mark, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. All right, Andy, I want to start off with a simple one. I want you to tell me the Andy Thorne and outstanding branding story. What's your background? Well, interesting one, really. My, my background coming up to, to 18 years in the industry. I'm sorry if you can hear that. Can you hear the rain? <laughs> you know, I was telling you, telling you before, it was a really sunny day. Yeah, I can hear the rain. But it rains all the time in London, no? <laughs> yeah, well, it does. it's obviously summer and, and we have had some sunshine, but... If I apologise for the thunder, lightning and, and rain. So, um, yeah, 18 years in the industry. Started off um, for Imprint, which is now brand edition, I suppose. Three years there, three and a half years there. Moved, moved to a smaller competitor where I met Sarah, my business partner today. Five years, been very successful as a salesperson, managing sales teams. And we got, I suppose, disillusioned because we had ideas and, and that company weren't necessarily listening to those ideas or taking them on board or particularly some forward thinking in that regard. Um, so the, the easiest thing, <laughs> which sounds funny, the easiest thing that me and Sarah thought we would do is build a business plan and do it ourselves. And started out expanding branding eight years ago on the 3rd of August, 2009. And 
the rest, as I say, is history. That's such a great story. And I think you see that a lot in the industry where you, know, you start off in a sales capacity and then for whatever reason, maybe a conflict with the existing company, or maybe you're just, you wanted to be a business owner in the first place and you go out and start something new. But why don't we go back? So 18 years ago, you're someone who is in your maybe early 20s at the time. What got you into the industry with 4imprint to start off with? And what were you doing in those first three years when you were in the industry? It's, it's interesting, really, because a lot of people end up in promotional merchandise by accident. I actually chose to, to come into the industry. I never went to university, done my school, I done my A-levels. And I came straight out and realized that I actually had the ability to convince people to say yes at a very early age, and I enjoyed it. So I worked in a computer shop. I managed a computer shop. Then I moved to the cable company and, and done knocking on doors and you know, very much B2C stuff. And, and then I moved into office furniture, office stationery, cut my teeth in B2B, started selling websites. And, and by then, I'd, I'd 24, I realized I had enough skills as a salesperson to then choose what I wanted to do next. And I'd always been to trade shows or exhibitions and picked up these, these, there you go, here's the, here's the thunder. I love it. It's like a Sherlock Holmes set. This is very appropriate. Beautiful, beautiful summer's day in, in London. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I realized I could choose the industry I wanted to go into, you know, rather than just taking a job because I needed to gain experience. You know, I'd gained retail, B2C, a little bit of B2B. And, yeah, I chose promotional merchandise and 4imprint employed me and... I love it. You know, I say 18 years on and I'm very passionate about the industry. I care about the industry probably a bit too much. And I couldn't imagine working in any other industry, to be fair. Why is it that you care about the industry so much? What is it that has got you so excited about the promotional products industry? I think it's the people. I actually get excited about what we can do. You know, it's not just about selling pens and notebooks and stress toys and mugs. You know, the promo industry, certainly in 18 years, and, and there's people going to be listening to this who have been doing this a lot longer than I have and seen change. But it's actually getting, and has been for a while now, a respected medium within marketeers. Yeah. And, and I've seen some of the campaigns that we've done for Uber or Powder Puff Girls, and you actually see those products being used yep. or given away or sold. And you realize you've been part of that. Yep. And that's a cool thing to do. The yep. other thing is also the people. You know, most of us don't manufacture anything. You know, most of us, all we've got is people. And we've spoken about this before as far as teams and stuff like that's concerned. But I've got great competitors that I get on very well with. I've got competitors I don't. And that adds to the mix as well. Yeah, they're yeah. still people. And I might still respect them. I might not. But I've got great suppliers. You know, I've met so many great people. It's a very social in industry. Everyone works hard, but generally everyone plays hard. Yeah, you know, they're, they're what's not to like? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So... Andy, a lot of the people who listen to the Promo Kitchen podcast are in the North American market. And so I want to talk a little bit about what it's like doing business in the UK. And, and so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about the market there. But let's start off with a question about outstanding branding and how you fare relative to other distributors in terms of size or maybe positioning or how you go to market. Are you considered a big distributor, a small distributor? Are you more on the agency side or more on the transaction side or more on the program side? I just want to understand how you fit into the overall picture in the UK. Yeah, like, like the US, I suppose, it's a very fragmented industry. 2,000 distributors. 
and there's probably only a hundred or so that turn over a million pound plus. Okay. Now, let's put it into comparison that the US market's worth 20 plus billion, the UK's worth a billion. You know, we turn over five million pound in the UK, brand edition, turnover, what, 50 million. But then if we put brand edition top, the jump back from there is quite big. You know, you're talking yeah. 15 million to the second place. Yeah, so wow. we would put ourselves probably top 20. And traditionally, our business is about understanding the agency feel, getting to know people, building rapport. However, you know, we've got technology coming through as far as the transactional side is coming as well. People do want to buy ones and, you know, Vistaprint has shown that. We've got technology launching very, very soon that picks up that market as well. But yeah, traditionally, we are the people that you know, are, are a full service agency. We will go in, we'll find out the requirements, look at the brief, Anchor Warehouse. We've got programs, we've got online systems. You know, we can tender for business. Yeah, you know, so that's our tradition. We've never, ever been the cheapest, never going to be the cheapest. We're not, not afraid to walk away from business. Where do we sit in the UK promo industry? Other people call us Marmite. Some people love us, some people hate us. And <laughs> it's purely because we do things a little bit differently. We don't mind doing things like OBTV, you know, getting our supply chain closer to our clients. Yeah. It scared a lot of people because a lot of our competitors, the dinosaurs, and you have them in every industry, but promo seems the worst. A lot of middle-aged white men who have done it the same way forever. And I'm sure it's the same in the US, you know, what we've seen, you know, we've opened in the office in New York, we've seen the same. Yep. Don't get me wrong, again, you've got disruptors and you've got people that are pushing it through, but we wanted to change that perception. And when we started the company, our website wasn't all about products. It was about our brand. Our brand is as important as the clients that we look after. OBTV, as I say, getting the supply chain closer to the clients. Yeah. They've generally got a great story to tell. We started doing that in the US as well. And the reception we've had has been brilliant, but no doubt there's people that don't like it. You know, what's to say that client can't go to the supplier? Oh, shut up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You've got 20 odd billion pounds worth of business. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, look, we do things a bit differently. Not all of it we get right, some of it we get wrong. Right. We're eight years old as a company and, and we're still learning. So, yeah, that's where we sit. How does this supply chain in the UK work? So, in North America, You've got an end client, you've got a supplier, and you've got a distributor. And, and that's a model that, well, certainly there's leakage there, for the most part, is how the industry seems to work in North America. Is that different in UK and, and Europe, or is it more fluid? No, I think it's pretty similar. There is suppliers, or vendors as you call them, that will supply directly to you know, the end user. And what I'd suggest is don't use those suppliers. Yeah, we've got a very, very loyal supplier base who eight years ago backed us. They continue to back us today. And I would put them in front of any of my clients, which we do. Yep. And not one of them has ever, ever gone over our head and, and taken a client because the relationship, you know, relationship is very, very key to us. It does happen. Of course it does. You know, you know my advice is don't deal with them suppliers. You know, right. they'll, they're cutting their nose off because at the end of the day, how many people can OB get out and see? How many people can they get to see? Right. If they're silly enough to try and grab a bit of business like that. Right. Yeah. And what percentage of your business approximately is imported from outside the UK versus business that is purchased from UK suppliers directly? Well, I suppose UK and European suppliers is 
about 98% of our spend. Really? Yeah, we do 1% or 2% direct with China. Oh, really? Okay. We made a decision eight years ago that we could potentially earn a few extra points working directly with China. And again, a lot of people in the UK do. Again, it always makes me laugh, you know, the way people morally talk about supporting the UK supply chain, and then we'll happily, happily go to the Far East to earn an extra two or three points. And me and Sarah don't do that. You know, for, for all of the people that call us Marmite, our loyalty and, and morals as far as our supply chain concerned are very important. So if we've got a big pitch we're working on, and we know it's price sensitive, we'll actually still go to the UK and European suppliers yeah. and, and we'll profit share. Yeah. Because they've got the factories, they've got the CSR, they've been audited, they know where the stuff's coming from, they're the experts in their field. Yep. I'm happy to lose some percentage points, one, for us all to win, and two, to make sure when the client gets the product that it doesn't explode in their hand or yep. you know, it's got the credentials to back it up. And a lot of our clients, being bigger clients, they want to see CSR, they want to see ethical sourcing, yep. they want to work with social enterprises. Yep. And all of those things are very, very important. So yep. 98% against 2%. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and if I reflect on my distributor experience with Right Sleeve and, and all the years that we've been in business, there's been lots of opportunities to go and purchase directly offshore. And the thing is, is like, you know, even though there's an opportunity, quote unquote, opportunity to save money and to put more margin in your pocket, it has never been worth the risk. Now, there may be people in this industry that are way smarter than you and I, Andy, that would say, well, you know, here's how you navigate that. And maybe we need to have those people on the podcast so they can educate us. But I've always felt if it's something complicated, it's a big deal. It is A, not worth our time and energy to go and source direct. B, we're not prepared to take the risk. C, there's also a financial arrangement with like letters of credit that go directly offshore that can also make it very, very challenging. And sometimes if you're working with a US or a European partner, you can sort out more favorable terms. So for me, in all my years and all the big deals that we've worked on for big international customers, it's never made sense. But for anyone who's listening to this that feels that you want to share your expertise and show where maybe Andy and I have missed the mark, then by all means, please let us know. Because I reckon them same people are the same people that moan about the suppliers going directly to the end user. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. I mean, we, we have this argument all the time. Yeah. You know, the, the distributors moan about suppliers going to end users, and they're the same people that will cut them out to go and go to China and order yeah. Far East. And sorry, you've got no time for you whatsoever. Stop moaning. Yeah. Stop moaning. I totally agree with that. And here's another comment that I'd make, at least one that's sharing from my experience, and I think it's similar to yours, Andy, is that if you're buying a product or you could buy for a dollar, let's say direct from China, and it's a dollar fifty, okay, let's say sourced from a European supplier. I also feel that there's some onus on you as the distributor salesperson to go and communicate the value of that dollar fifty product to the end client. And if you're not, and all they are is just grinding you on price, then I have always felt that either A, it's not the right client, or B, you've done a lousy job as a salesperson in showing the value that goes well beyond the price. And I've always believed in that and always been very happy to walk away from the deal if it means I have to go to the dollar guy in China and it's going to expose me to all sorts of risks. I'd rather sell the $1.50 product. It's going to be more margin for me. And I know that the client is going to be ultimately buying the whole package as opposed to the procurement person that is looking at an Excel spreadsheet field going, it's got to be this price. Like I don't buy that. No, I think you're spot on, to be honest with you. 
I suppose it's quite easy to say about you know people going there because it's putting an extra few percentage points on. But actually, you're right. You know, it is just devaluing a product, and and no one wins then because it does push the price down, and the salesperson is not doing their job. And that's why I say, you know, work with the supply chain. There's a lot of good people out there in the UK and the US and in Europe, and they'll work with you. You know, they'll do the visuals. They'll come in and, and pitch on your behalf. Yeah. They'll they'll love that experience. And then the client, the client actually thinks to themselves, hold on, they're actually opening their supply chain. They're being transparent. That's pretty cool. And you know, then together, you can actually both win. And what does that do further on down the line? You know, you need a favor, you need a better price, you need a quick production, you need some visuals doing. That supply, I'm sure, will put you ahead of the person that's every time there's a big order going to China. Yeah. Um, it builds that relationship again. Right. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. I want to switch gears, Andy, and talk about your global expansion and global ambitions. Of course, you are headquartered in the UK, but for the benefit of listeners, you have been aggressive in your growth and you have a standalone physical office in New York City. You have a team there that you're building. And I'm curious just for you to talk a little bit about your expansionist initiatives, why you decided to come into the US and the last part of that question, if you remember it, (laughs) I'm famous for my multi-part questions is, has it been a challenge growing in the U.S. as someone who is headquartered in another country? The first part, where did it come from? The world's getting a smaller place, and the clients that we speak to want us to work with them globally. Yep. So that made us start thinking about it. One client in particular, American company that we started dealing with eight years ago, wanted us to look after UK and European merchandise. And we've done such a great job and they become our biggest client very, very quickly. Then wanted us to look after them in the US and we just couldn't do it. We didn't have the supply chain. We didn't have the resource. We didn't have the warehousing. And we were growing a business in the UK at the time as well. So you know, anyone out there growing businesses knows it's not always easy. So, but it was always there. It's always been part of the business plan. And as I say, you know, me and Sarah, our CEO, my business partner, we, we regularly look at that plan. We had an opportunity with Sourcing City one of our UK partners who partnered with ASI to go to an ASI show in Chicago. My apologies, I don't live by a runway, but London City Airport's not far away. So as well as the rain, you can now hear aeroplanes as well. Sorry about that. I, I love uh, it. it. It adds to the ambience, my friend. Yeah, yeah. I could just shut my window, but... No, no, no. This is perfect. It's quite warm. Yeah, so we went to, and we were introduced to the amazing Michelle Bell, and who then spent three days introducing us to some incredible people, Bill Karowitz, Billy Bow, Ira from Advantage, Jewel from Shumsky, the list goes on. And very, very quickly, we got introduced to the right people. Tim Andrews, you know, the, the, so the list goes on and on and on. And the reason we came over was for twofold. Can we do it ourselves or should we partner with someone? Yeah. And we did look at that initially and we realized that if we can continue to build the relationships with the supply chain like we do in the UK, and we've got the backing and the support from people like ASI, PPI, and why not do it ourselves? So that continued, the development continued. Our technology partner and our warehouse partner opened premises in America, so that sorted the resource point of view. So then we went back to the client and pitched for the business and said, yeah, right, we can do it now. And so we won that bit of business. and. They were happy for us initially to actually work with them from afar. So 
you know, and this is hilarious, really. Their current distributor never went to see them. They were taking half a million dollars worth of business a year and not actually going to see this company. And I suggested we would see her three or four times a year. And we were going to fly over backs and forwards. Anyway, after the first meeting, we realized there's quite an opportunity out there. You know, the industry in the UK is worth a billion. The industry in the, the US is worth 20 plus. We're good at what we do. We're a little bit different when we go to market. And if you've got people earning or certainly turning over half a million dollars on one account and not even seeing the client, with the way we go to market, we could quite quickly become a bit of a player. More and more of our clients have asked in the meantime, you know, can we look after them globally? So yeah, we decided, you know, rather than just having the headache of having one business, we'll have two businesses on separate sides of the world. <laughs> so you might say we're a bit sadistic in that respect. <laughs> yeah, but you you know, you've got that expansionist or dare I say entrepreneurial <laughs> flair there. <laughs> That's a bit of an inside joke. But <laughs> So, so, okay. So I completely appreciate that. And there's no question that there are distributors in Canada as well as in the US that will set up shop in the UK and Europe, whether it's their own office or whether it's a joint partnership because they have to service the global offices of a US company. So totally get that. So you hired Rob Watson, who was formerly with ASI to be your, I believe, managing director for the US office. How did you get someone of Rob's caliber to, to work for this unknown UK company? Like, I'm curious about that story and you know, kudos to you for hiring such a, you know, a valuable find. I go back 18 years or 20 years when I realized I won't go to university. I have a, I have a knack of making people say yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Just like Winston Churchill, who I've compared you to. You have indeed. It's, it's, my, it's my great looks, isn't it? It's my good looks. The jowls. The jowls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And look, we're very passionate about what we do. Rob is hugely experienced, and he was looking for a new opportunity after five years at ASI. And we'd met him again a few years before at an ASI Chicago show, and he put a post out on LinkedIn. I reached out to him and me and Sarah were on holiday at the time. We had three Skype video calls whilst we were away, sold him the dream, presented the vision and the goals, and he bought into what we're, we're aiming to achieve. And when you know, you've got someone of Rob's caliber, and he joined us as, as our chief marketing officer. Yeah. And he's been with us nearly a year now. And you know, going back to your question about how do you run a business in two countries, you, you just can't. And me and Sarah's directors want to direct the company, not be doing all of the doing bit, because yeah. then we can't grow. We can't actually realize the vision and the goals. Yeah. And we realized that we need someone of Rob's caliber in the US. There was always, when we looked at him, we always knew ourselves that if he could prove what we already thought we knew, then to become our MD in the US. And he's got a lot of drive, very passionate man. He, he works very, very hard. You know, you always got to surround yourself with people that are better than yourself right. because that way, you know, you'll always achieve more than you can ever do. And, and Rob's one of them people who takes professionalism to another level. Yep. Yeah, you know, we're very, very fortunate. He believes in our goals. He believes in our values. And already, you know, he's, he's making a huge impression in as being the, the MD out there. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations to you know each of you for I think, finding a great partnership and environment. So I just want to get a sense of the numbers here for a second. So you start in the US when? When did you open that office? 
In October 2016. Okay, so we're talking like not even a year ago. So now you hire Rob, and how many people are in the U.S. office right now? There's actually only two of them at the moment. We had a, a salesperson, didn't work out. You know, again, it's no different having a U.S. business to a U.K. one. Yep. Good people are hard to find, yep. and it's exactly the same. So as usual, it's like buses because at the moment we've got Adam on board. We've got Julie starting in Washington on the 1st of September. And another opportunity that should take that to the three salespeople very, very quickly. At the yeah. moment, we, we do the, the production from the UK, but you know, we'll be hiring CSR and, and support staff out there very, very soon. So yeah, the goals for this year are aggressive. $3 million for the US this year. Yeah, that's great. And, and in that limited amount of time, that's fantastic. So do you and Sarah see a time when your US business could be bigger in revenue as well as headcount compared to your yeah. London office? Like, is, is, that, yeah. is that something that you foresee in, let's say, two, three years? 100%. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, um, you know, you'd be crazy not to. Yeah. Just because of the size of the market. And also, you know, if we talk about global, you know, look, we also have partnerships as well with, with US distributors. We'd, you know, we would never stop that yep. because we can do both. You know, we, we were very ethical in our approach. You know, we signed contracts to say we won't go after those people. And, you know, we do the, the job that we, we say we're going to do. But most definitely, it will surpass that. Right. And what will happen is, you know, the growth in the US will help aid the growth in the UK as well. Yeah. You know, look, I won't be happy until we're at least number one in the UK. So watch out, Chris Lee at Brand Edition. Yes. It's fighting words. And, you know, my goal is, look, when we go to the ASI show in Chicago, very, very inspirational very great to see the banquet and the awards and what it means to people and we've won many awards over the past eight years and every time i don't get blase about it, neither 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 sarah or i do that the same feeling you know that recognition is is phenomenal and i want to be one of those people going up to pick up you know the top 40 distributor award and i'd be happy to start off at 40th place but my goal in the us is to be number one there and okay yeah i've got to get 500 600 million to be in that space but why not? You know, the game isn't hard. The problem is people, you know, and, and having balls, you know, as long as you've got some balls to actually roll the dice and go for it. Yep. And it's got to be calculated. And, you know, we've had this conversation before as well. If I didn't have an amazing business partner that I've got, I'd be bust. I, you know, I'd have no money and I, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, that's true. We've met Sarah. She's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, you know, and, and so... As much as I give the bravado, you know, there is a plan behind it. Yep. And you know, we'll go after that business. So watch out. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so you talk about having the quote unquote balls to you know make these big bets. And oh. and and clearly you've made some big bets and we've heard about some of your successes, you know, this US office being a prime example of that success. Can you share with me a time when you rolled the dice in the last few years where you failed spectacularly? Spectacularly. Yeah. And Sarah yeah. said, I told you so. <laughs> yeah. No. You know, the funny thing about this story is it was Sarah that caused it. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay. We need, we need to get Sarah on this for a little rebuttal. But anyways, go ahead. <laughs> I'm only going to tell the truth on this. It was in our first year of trading and, and we took on an order for £30,000. So back then it would have been about $45,000. Today it's about £30,000. <laughs> yeah. So... Big, big apparel order. The client paid half up front and we delivered everything. They were meant to pay the, the second half in 30 days. 
and basically knocked us for 15 grand's worth of money. And say, as a company that has only just started, it could have taken us down. You know, it, it was like, you know, we, we still have to play the supplier. Thankfully, going back to those relationships, a, a very, very good friend of ours, George at Essential Embroidery, we managed to, to work out a payment plan of £1,000 a month. And George saved us because if that was a supplier that called in the debt, we wouldn't have been able to service it. And do you know what happened after then, Mark? We actually credit checked every single client that comes through our door and we started putting credit limits on people. So, you know, you live and learn. And, and it was a okay, spectacular, spectacular fail. I mean, it's cliche to say that I think, you know, these failures do make you stronger. But I think that as someone who has made his fair share of mistakes uh, as well, <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting like I never thought that I'd be 18 years in this industry and particularly with all the mistakes that I've made, but I think back and I think we've maybe never been as strong and maybe as wise as we are right now, despite that string of failures, because we've tried to internalize and learn from them. It sounds like that's the exact same way with you guys. Yeah, definitely. You know, look, there's a lot of people to tell you we could act our age, you know, which we don't. We enjoy life. We like to have a drink. We like to have a laugh, but we take our industry not just here, but in the US now, you know, we're, we've opened an office there and we spend a lot of time. So, you know, we want to be part of the industry and, and help it grow and care and, and actually, you know, learn from our peers. Yep. There's some great people out there and, you know, some of the mistakes, listen to people's mistakes and makes you realize that, you know, the ones that you make yourself, you are not alone. You know, that it happens to other people. And, you know, if you can take some heart or take some knowledge or take something from other people, then hopefully it does make you a bigger, better person. Yeah. Sometimes you make the mistake again, and hopefully the third time you learn. Right. If not, I think you're just that type of person. Yeah. And, and you know, I'll say, Andy, that it feels like you guys came out of the blue, out of nowhere, particularly in the North American market. And, you know, this is maybe just more of an observation and a comment that I think that that's a testament to you and Sarah that you are so interested in being involved in the industry and that you want to collaborate and learn and meet people. It's exciting to see that. And, whether you're a UK distributor or whether you're in Canada or in the US, it doesn't matter where you are. But I just think that we need more people that are prepared to put their hand up and get involved, You know, whether that's formally in the industry associations or in the informal groups and associations like what we have here at Promo Kitchen. So I think that it's great. And clearly, it's something that benefits you from the standpoint of like new learning, new relationships, and that's good for business, but it's also good for the soul too, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I also think, you know, it goes back, to, I said this uh, said to you before, we have the same problem here as we do there, that there's not enough new people coming into the industry, there's not enough new blood. And hopefully if people can see that the industries are not run by middle-aged white men, that we do have diversity, we do have women, you know, we're a wholly owned woman business. You know, hopefully that inspires. And, and I listened to Chuck Fandos at, at the ASI Power Summit last year in Miami, and something he said was very, very pertinent in as far as we should be getting promotional merchandise into universities, into college, as part of the courses as marketing. You know, should the industry itself be putting its hand in its pocket to fund these university courses? You know, we're all moaning about there's not enough people, not enough good people, not enough diversity coming in. But then we've all got to do something about it. And I suppose that intrigues me. You know, we tried it ourselves having a graduate training program because you know, I love our trade association. But unfortunately, we've not been able to rely on them to bring people in. And, and they're doing more. You know, they've, they've managed to get a syllabus into a college course and a university course, which is huge. 
but we had to do something ourselves. Otherwise, all that you end up doing is paying agencies huge fees for the same people to move around. I suppose that's why we like to get involved because one day we're going to become the old dinosaur and, and other people are going to come shooting for us. Yeah, so, yeah that's I, the way I, it is, right? It's always full <laughs> circle. <laughs> I prefer to be part of that, bringing them people in and, and they keep me and, and Sarah on our toes because we have to think a lot harder. Yeah. We have to think innovatively. Yeah, we have to think about the future. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get your take on Amazon. So there's a lot of discussion in the North American market. I suspect it's exactly the same in the UK about the threat of the online space. So it could start with the here and now of companies like Branders and Discount Mugs and 4imprint. They represent a certain threat to non-e-commerce enabled distributors. So we know that as a baseline. But if we extend it even further, there's a lot of concern about Amazon entering the business. I'm sure they will at some point, and we're not sure exactly what that's going to look like. But is that something that you think about or care about or get worried about at Outstanding Branding? I'm curious to know yes or no. It excites me, actually, because a bit like you know, Vistaprint and those types of companies, they create opportunity. First of all, what they do is they actually promote the industry. Yep. They do what a lot of us are trying to do, which is, you know, make promo the the first thing a marketer thinks about. They have bigger marketing budgets than I have. And if they can actually turn someone on to a bit of promo, then great. You know, it expands the market. And why worry about it? You know, we just said the American market's worth 20 plus billion dollars. No one's mopping that up anytime soon. Same with the UK. So the, the first thing it does is excite me. Then the other thing it does for me is, well, how do I compete? How do I get involved? How, how do I get a piece of that pie? And... Yeah, we've already, as I said earlier on in this, yeah, we've already started that process by having some technology to compete with Vistaprint for the power of one. You know, those smaller companies that we don't traditionally deal with that might want 10 mugs, five polo shirts, personalization. You know, we've got technology launching very, very soon that's going to do that. And, you know, something that we're also looking at at the moment is how do we actually sell personalized promo via Amazon? So rather than worrying about it, we're going to join it and get on board yeah it's like anything in life you know why fear something that's going to potentially happen yep industry has been around a long time it's evolved and it continues to evolve yep and either going back to the dinosaurs running our industry people will either evolve create their niche that is still going to be needed or have a bit of both yep so yeah you know, to me it's exciting yeah i've never worried about competitors and you know if you, you spend too much time worrying about competitors you don't worry enough about your own business and then what you find is that your turnover and your profit don't go up. It goes down because you spend too much time worrying about other people yep. or actually spend some time looking at the people that are doing things differently, differently and good, not differently and bad. And can you replicate it? Is it a threat or is there an opportunity there? That's how I see it. Right. And I think that's a very progressive and refreshing view. And I think it's certainly one that's shared by a decent number of people in the industry. And of course, there's a Another segment of the industry that is filled with worry and fear. And I mean, you could maybe understand why they'd be worried because they may have been doing business a certain way for the last 15, 20 years. And now all of a sudden that is changing and people don't like that. But I completely agree that I think, I mean, you look at technological advances and this may be a funny analogy, but I'm going to run with it because it's the one that popped in my mind. You think, let's say back 100 years ago with the farming industry, when things were done manually, and then all of a sudden the tractor came about. And, you know, I bet if we were speaking to people 100 years ago, there was a podcast for 
you know, farming, let's say, <laughs> you would probably have someone talking about how the industry was going to hell in a handbasket, that, you know, the tractors were taking over, the robots were taking over, and the industry would be... Mark, can I just stop you? You've got to be living the dream if you're listening to a bleeding farming podcast, seriously. And no disrespect to the farmers out there, but <laughs> wow. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I know. I, I'm sure. I'm sure the Google search could probably return a, a farming podcast from today. But we're talking about the farming podcast in you know 1917. To be fair, there's a lot more things Google can return that are a lot more fun than farming podcasts. <laughs> so, but anyways, to sort of finish that point, you know, obviously you see the size and the dynamism of the farming and agricultural industry today. And a lot of that was brought about by the tractor. Oh. And yes, there are certain jobs, there are certain opportunities that will go by the wayside. But think of all those people that got on that trend and recalibrated their businesses. Those businesses would have grown exponentially. And I think that that's the same sort of thing with Amazon. Amazon will never be all things to all people. You also make a great point that Amazon is funny. They would likely be a competitor and a marketplace. So that's yeah. just the way they roll. Okay. So they're going to stab you in the back on one end and they're going to give you some money on the other end if you use their marketplace. And I think it's just, <laughs> you, you know, the smart people will adapt. So that's my, you know, kind of comment on that. And I just wanted to say a shout out to you, Andy, for that progressive attitude, because I think it's something that everyone in this industry should feel as opposed to being worried about it. Yeah. At the end of the day, even if they're not going to do it, you know, look, Amazon are a big old beast but they're not going to kill the promo industry. You know what I mean? Like that, that I'd put money on. Because there'll always be people out there that want to actually have interaction. There's people out there that want to have a consultative approach. They're going to want people to innovate, brainstorm, come up with ideas, visuals, and be at the end of the phone when something goes wrong. And, you know, we've all been in promo long enough. You know, there, there are problems. And that's when we all learn our corn, going back to your farming analogy. That, that's when we all learn our money yeah, we can all supply a product and we can all get creative, but it's, it's how do you put it right? You know, how do you give that customer experience? And I'm not sure Amazon are going to be able to keep up with that area of the industry. They're so powerful and strong. Yes, you know, they'll be able to sell online and you know sell it very, very effectively. But if there's going to be a problem, it's going to be the people that, that have the great customer service already and are great companies. And, and there's plenty of them out there in the UK and the US. Yep. Then people will thrive anyway. Yeah, exactly. I was having this conversation the other day with a younger professional in the industry. She is a marketing director at a US-based distributor that's more on the agency side. Right. And I was having a conversation with her about what she was doing. What's her name, Mom? Does she buy any promotional merchandise? <laughs> we, we can talk off air, I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Never thought after a lead, do you know what I mean? I'm always pitching for a bit of business, so. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you bet. So it, anyways, it's kind of a cool story. So she works at a US-based distributor in marketing and someone who I believe is in her mid-20s, okay? So right in that millennial kind of demographic, someone who's obviously very comfortable with technology and before joining this particular distributor had worked as an end client. Yep. I think had been in the construction industry in San Francisco. So sort of like the Mecca of like, you buy everything on Amazon or you buy everything online. And she was saying, it was interesting. In my previous life, I was tasked with ordering promotional items at this particular construction company. And they were, you know, a fairly forward thinking kind of innovative construction company and wanted to engage their customers at sort of this next level. Okay. And so she's tasked with this as a junior marketing person, which is what you often see in this business to go and find cool 
promotional products that will have an impact and will drive significant results. Okay, so that's what her objective was from her boss. A bit intimidating. So she goes to Google. She finds, you know, a litany of websites that have got all sorts of products. She types in construction products into these search engines and can't find anything other than bulldozer-shaped stress toys, <laughs> which for her, given she's in San Francisco, she's trying to appeal to this next-generation construction buyer. She's kind of 2.0. Her marketing goes, well, that was super lame, and you know, I had to do it because I didn't know where else to go. Yeah. And so she was contrasting that to finish this story. She's contrasting that with, well, look at the place that I work at today. It's agency-oriented. It's design-forward. It's account manager-based. And if I was working with this particular company when I was the marketing person at this construction firm, it would have been an absolute life changer. They would have held my hand. They would have delivered upon my marketing objective and would have delivered a suite of product suggestions that would have accomplished my marketing goal. And I then said to her, you know, what's funny about that is in the search box, you can only type a product. You can't type, I'm looking to engage my next generation customer base in a way that will drive engagement and additional revenue. You can't type that into a search engine. (laughs) And and that is what I love about this business is that you've got this one side of it that is, I need bulldozer-shaped stress toys, and that's totally cool. There's a place for you. And then there's this whole other side of the business that is focused on solving marketing problems and making customers look fantastic. And that's where the outstanding brandings of the world, at least from what I understand, play in, and you will always have a franchise. So There you go. Off my soapbox, but I just feel there's opportunity for both. You're bang on the money, mate. We have the same arguments here as well. You know, people online selling at 20%. You know, well, good luck to them because if they've got a business and a model that that actually sustains that, fine, you know, crack on. You know, I've got a good friend of mine I used to work with and he's got a great business and very hugely successful and he's got a model that, that is exactly that. And people in the industry moan about it. Well, why moan? You know, it's not your business for a start. And yeah, you're going you're gonna to lose some business on, on price and lack of innovation, but then pick it up elsewhere. You know, go for the companies and the clients are looking for exactly that. There's too much moaning that goes on as well. That's what I don't like moaning. Actually, I like moaning, but I don't like moaning in the industry. <laughs> exactly. All right. I've got one other question for you, Andy, and then I want to circle back and give you the last word so you can share something that we haven't covered. So my last question for you is, you know, you stated at the beginning that you're a guy who can be divisive. So, you know, Mm. you've said, I think in your own words, that you have the ability to piss some people off. You come across as a very affable guy in this podcast, very likable, but, you know, there's obviously another part of you where, you know, there'd be some people out there that that would say, you know, Andy Thorne pisses me off. I'm curious if you can tell me what it is about you that upsets some people. (laughs) <laughs> because I do the things that people would like to do, but don't because they're too afraid. I'll t- tell you a prime example. We, um, again, early doors, probably two or three years after we started, we needed good people. And we went to the, the trade association and said, look, you've got a database of all of our competitors. Will you send out a mail shot for us? We're looking for staff. Mm. And uh, they, they said yes, which I was surprised at. And anyway, Happy days. It's like, you know, I'm going to send an advert into all of my competitors' inbox. Now, a lot of people would think that's immoral. A lot of people would think that's stupid. And to be fair, I'm not 100% sure I actually thought the trade association were going to say yes. Anyway, so we put the advert together and we sent it out. That morning, the phone rang off the hook from competitors going absolutely mad. 
you know, how dare you send emails into my staff? And I can understand where they're coming from because actually I wouldn't be very happy about it. But all I did was took an opportunity. I asked a question. I got a yes and they did it. And to this day, there's one guy, a competitor, and I actually really respect their business. And he just doesn't like me. You know, and I mean, doesn't like me. And I don't know why, because I really like their business. No problem with him. I think it goes back to that, that occasion where, you know, we did something that was, here's an example. You know, when we, that happened, we, me and Sarah got called a couple of Muppets online. We had you know, people blogging about it, immoral, unethical. And, and then fast forward to a year ago, the same sort of thing happened, but with LinkedIn. We used email on LinkedIn, and the person that, that we contacted decided to send the mail to her boss, and her boss then decides to actually out Sarah, funnily enough, again. You see, I imagine I'm meant to be the disruptor, and you see how much problems she causes. That girl's a nightmare. But the same thing happened, and the, the MD of this company outed her for actually using LinkedIn for what it is. So I think some of the times our reputation precedes us because these certain things have happened, but actually we care very much about people, we're very, very ethical, we're very, very moral, but we push the boundaries and we do take a, we take the view of, okay, look, sometimes you have to upset people, but it's never done with malice. It's never done with, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying, to, trying to be notorious, or I, I suppose I don't care about the people that don't mean anything to me. I care very, very much about the people that mean something to me. And that's the attitude I have in life. And you know, I suppose that attitude can get you into trouble. You know, some people don't like that attitude. Tough. You know, that's that's who we are. And, you know, the, the OBTV, the things like, you know, using LinkedIn. You know, using LinkedIn. How mad is this? Using LinkedIn for what it's meant to be used for, yeah. which is contacting prospective employees. Yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. But apparently people don't like that. You know, we've done things like you know, end user shows. You know, most end user shows, people have a style old hotel some scabby old sandwiches and we, we upset the apple cart and we hide out the Tower of London and we have our end user show at the Tower of London and Mark or anyone else if you're in London on October the 3rd or 4th I can't remember 4th October the 4th we have our end user show Tops the outstanding promo show at the Tower of London I love you're it more than welcome to come along I love it but we upset the apple cart by actually saying no you know, we'll take a decent venue and put on a decent show and actually again people people got the ump people didn't like it OBTV, because we innovated and done something different. Look, we're not the first people to actually blog or vlog or whatever. You know, all we did is the first person in our industry. We created a company video. Again, people didn't like it because we'd done it professionally rather than some mug on an iPhone. Yeah. We actually got a company in to do it. Yeah. And it, again, it, it, it represents professionalism. Yeah. But that upsets people because maybe they're jealous they want to do it. You know, they're frustrated. Oh, I'd like to do that, but we can't or we didn't think about it. And there's a lot of things, don't get me wrong, I'm the same. I look at what some other people do and I'm the same. I'm like, oh, wish I thought of that. Yeah. But I don't, I don't start hating the person before it. I just think, well, I've got to think more creatively next time to what we do. Yeah. So, yeah, look, mate, you know, at the end of the day, I don't lose any sleep about it. The people that don't like me, people that don't like a company, people that get the, the, the hump or you know, don't get what we're about, well, that's their problem. You know, They can cry into their cornflakes and, and we'll continue to innovate, push forward and I'll piss some people off. <laughs> right, right. I admire the confident approach. And I think that that, you know, whether it's right or wrong, I think that, you know, truly successful people in business in this industry and certainly outside this industry are people with vision. They stick to a mission and they're not afraid to ruffle some feathers if it's done 
in the service of realizing their vision. And I think this is the asterisk that it's not anything that is, you know, illegal or immoral. I think at the end of the day, you know, this is a business and, you know, you got to go after it. And I think that the confident people win and if they do it with a smile on their face and they do it, you know, holding their head high, then I think that that's something to be admired. And also, let me sort of put a caveat at the end of that, Mark. Me and Sarah are probably two of the most humblest people you'll ever meet. We invest in our people, we invest in the company, we're the last people to take a piece of the action. You know, we're very humble in the fact that we have an amazing supply chain that supports us. We have great, great staff. We have incredible clients and we get opportunities like this. And you know what? We, we have to pinch ourselves. We have to pinch ourselves the fact that the people listening at home and the people that want to comment on us, you know, that we take a very humble approach to it, that we don't take it for granted. We work very hard at it. And as I say, we try to enjoy it as well. And I say that sometimes does just cause some ripple effect. It's never done with malice. It's never done with a nastiness. It's only ever done to better the business, better the people we employ, or better the people we service. And and that will never change. And if people don't like that, tough shit. Yeah. Andy, in wrapping this up, we always like to give our guests the last word. Anything that you would like to share that I haven't asked you, or do you just want to share where people can learn more about Outstanding Branding, about Andy Thorne, about Sarah Penn? I'll give it to you to close this off, my friend. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, no, it's been enjoyable, to be honest with you. And, and um, I, I like speaking to you, Mark. You, you're a good guy. And, and thank you for coming to you. You know, we, again, going back to the support we've got, you know, the, the Commerce platform is, is, again, absolutely superb. Promo Kitchen, I think, is a great thing. You know, we don't have enough of that in the UK. The education, the learning, no one can learn too much. We're all capable of learning a bit more each day. And we say that to our team here. You know, just every day, look back and think, could I have done better? How do, what do I do well? Tomorrow, could I just put an extra extra little bit in and, and get a little bit extra out? So thank you very, very much. To learn more about us, outstandingbranding.com. The US site will be launching at the end of this month, which I think is going to be quite nice for people to look at. Again, it's not just going to be about products. It will be very much an agency feel. I'm looking at globalness. Outstandingbranding.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter, but to be honest with you, all I do is I moan and rant about train companies. I have to get a train to work every day, and the train companies absolutely shocking. So I spend most of my time on Twitter moaning about train companies, so I'm not, <laughs> not particularly that interested to follow on Twitter. But yeah, no, just thank you very much. We're off to New York tomorrow morning to go back to our second home and continue the journey, really, and I wish everyone else the best of luck. That's great. Well, thank you, Andy. This has been such a great conversation, a wild ride, as always. And I encourage uh, folks to reach out to Andy. He is a really great guy, loves to share, total character. And I think we need more people like Andy Thorne and Sarah Penn in the industry. So thank you, my friend. Have a great day. Awesome having you on our Promo Kitchen podcast. Thank you, mate. Take care. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.